So, Karen. Yeah? Forgiveness. For or against it? Against it. <laughs> Justin, forgiveness. For or against? Well, I'm for it. Okay. All right, then. That's it. <laughs> All right, we're going to go a little deeper than that. On, on our topic this morning, but let that be a lesson that the simple yes or no, for or against it question misses the nuance and depth and complexity that you may desire. So this morning, uh, we've set it up like this. I'll be arguing in favor of forgiveness and how forgiveness is a spiritual technology that helps us keep our soul intact. Karen will be arguing that you can live a spiritually grounded life without a committed practice to forgiveness and still your soul can be intact. And we'll be doing this sermon in three parts this morning, um, kind of this back and forth dynamic, this conversation between us. And so first, we'll look at forgiveness on an individual level. What does it mean to practice or not practice forgiveness between individuals? We'll look at forgiveness in the context of a community. How does a community practice or not practice forgiveness? And what are the benefits or harm that can be done when a community forgives? And then finally, we'll look at forgiveness through the lens of Unitarian Universalism, through our own faith tradition. What does our faith teach us about forgiving or not forgiving? Our goal in all of this, and we've had a really, uh, a really powerful experience and exchange so far, our goal through all of this is to create some tension in you, in this body this morning, around the limits and the possibilities of forgiveness. So I'll start. Uh, this is the forgiveness in the individual. And before I really get into this, I want to just say this morning that forgiveness in many ways is like the state fair, the Minnesota State Fair. It's huge. It's gigantic. You really can't see it all in one visit. Now, someone on the way out of the first service was like, yeah, you can. Come with me. I'll show you. It's, it's 14 hours. It's 14 hours. You start here. Like, here's the map. I can, we can do this. I was like, that's, that's intense. Like, for me... And I think for the contours and the shape of forgiveness, it takes many visits, many experiences, because there's different nuances and perspectives. And based on your gender or your class or your race, there's a different understanding of what forgiveness is. So it is huge. You need days and weeks and months to explore it. So we have the month of April. Our theme is forgiveness. So there will be other Sundays. You'll hear from Reverend Jen, myself later on, and other folks about forgiveness. But we're just scratching the surface. I want to start, <clears throat> excuse me, with a Buddhist parable a colleague of mine shared with me a couple of years ago that really has stuck with me, that's been informative. And the parable goes like this. There's a person who's been struck by an arrow from an unknown attacker. Maybe it's, oh, <laughs> maybe it lands in their, their shoulder or their back. And instead of pulling out the arrow, like removing this arrow and taking care of the wound, the person who's been shot is determined not to rest until the attacker is found and is punished. The individual's friends, they say to this person that's been shot with this arrow, hey, stop and allow the healing process to begin. But this individual insists on wearing the arrow as evidence of the harm that has been done. Look what, look what was done to me. So, can you see how badly I'm hurt? Can you believe how horrible that archer that shot me is like? And ultimately, the wound festers, and it gets infected, and finally, the individual dies. And the story asks us, this parable asks us, what is more responsible for this death, the archer's arrow 
for the victim's foolish holding on. I share this parable because I find it instructive. Often when we are hurt, when I am hurt, when something has been done to me, a harsh word or someone did something that wronged me, I feel wronged. It's as if I've been shot by this metaphorical arrow. I've been hurt and I focus on that wrong rather than on the process of regaining my equilibrium, rather than on the process of moving toward some kind of healing, rather than simply trying to remove that arrow and focusing on healing, I focus on the pain. And I believe that unless we can find a way to forgive, we run the risk of becoming walking embodiments, walking wounded, really, of hurt and resent and anger and bitterness. The person who hurt us, the person who shot that arrow might be long gone. They might be dead. They might be in prison. And yet even from behind bars or from the grave, we can give them control and power to continue to hurt us if we don't take out the arrow. What we truly have control over is ourselves and how we respond to the hurt we've been experienced. Likely it will take time and process and friends and and support to name the hurt, to name what has happened, but it doesn't have to take over and define our life. We don't have to hold on to that pain like a terrible prize that we can't set down. Forgiveness, then, in this individual way is about giving up, as you heard this morning, all hope for a better past and then liberating us from the prison of the past. Hear me now, forgiveness is not about forgetting or tolerating or approving or accepting or just subjecting yourself to ongoing harmful behavior and injury. Forgiveness is not about staying in an abusive relationship or just turning the other cheek. It is about getting into safety and then from that safe place, finding a way to remove the arrow, to refuse to give the one who harmed you any more power. When we can forgive another. We free up space in our heart, where instead of poison and anger and rage, love and compassion can grow and blossom. This can help us keep our soul intact. I remember the first time I went to a Catholic church. We got on our knees and said the Lord's Prayer. When we got to the part that says, Forgive us our trespasses for those and blah, 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 as they forget. I couldn't even get the words out. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. I was like, you got to be kidding. It was the spring of 1968. I was 10 years old with a newly sprouted afro. Dr. King had just been murdered. The streets were on fire with rage, and the church is telling me to get on my knees and ask for forgiveness. I'm not having it. It was at that moment that I knew forgiveness was not something I could trust as a solve, as a salve for my pain and my suffering. I was also a city kid from Philly, And I grew up with two lines, either you get over or you get even. Some of you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) There were rules. You mess with me and my friends, there will be consequences. 
We kids had our own little court of justice, and we worked things out nonviolently like Dr. King. It was only when the adults got involved that we started to see the superficiality of fake forgiveness, which they dispensed from the Supreme Court of Parenthood. I cannot tell you how many times my mother said to me, Karen, that's not nice. Say you're sorry. And the other mother would say, Joyce, now say you forgive Karen. We complied faithfully, but with our eyes rolling at each other because we're going to return to the kid court of justice as soon as they are gone. <laughs> and this kid court of justice found me guilty as charged of my crime, and I had to do Joyce's homework for free for a week instead of charging her a dime like I usually did. <laughs> this was fair. This was justice. Now, according to many people, forgiveness is the answer to most, if not all, of our problems. The key to enlightenment, a necessary part of becoming a better person. If we don't embrace forgiveness, the general message goes, we'll devolve into some kind of bitter misanthropes, trapped in a life of inner turmoil and destined to never achieve our full potential. This is precisely why I have been in the closet about my suspicions of forgiveness for all of these years. The pressure has been great, <laughs> but it's too much, so I'm coming out today. <laughs> I have to. Much of my disdain for forgiveness comes from my circumspect eye towards moral respectability and superiority. Forgiveness often seemed to be associated with certain kind of magnanimous personalities, spiritual growth, and of course, religiosity. The ability to forgive is widely seen as evidence of how high human beings rank on the chain of being. After all, other mammals don't forgive, as far as we know. But from a psychological point of view, or even a philosophical point of view, the two questions for me as an individual are, why should I forgive? And when I do forgive, how do I benefit? Now, of course, I am from that part of the country that basically asks the question about everything is the question is, what's in it for me? Intention, or more precisely, an individual's perception of another's intention is central to forgiveness. You don't feel the need to forgive when the branch of your neighbor's tree wipes out your car windshield. You simply want the insurance carrier's information. That's it. On the other hand, same neighbor smashes my windshield with a tire iron in a fit of anger over some slight is forgiveness something I should aspire to, or is a restraining order more important? <laughs> Here's where it gets tricky, because what passes for forgiveness in common parlance is often confusing. Forgiveness is not acceptance. 
if I accept my neighbor's personality in this case, because Jimmy has an anger management issue, I don't need to forgive him. He's got issues. Forgiveness also isn't a synonym for reconciliation. Jimmy's intention may have been to harm me next after he harmed my car. It has become somewhat common wisdom to believe that forgiving a person who did you wrong is just not the right thing to do, but it'll somehow make you emotionally, even physically healthier in the long run by alleviating the anger and stress that you feel. Friends, I would like to warn us against assuming that forgiveness is always the right answer and that someone who failed to offer forgiveness was not a good person and, gosh forbid, a good minister or a mentally healthy person. If it's a good thing to forgive, I say more power to you. If it really works for you, great. But I am skeptical of any universal sentiment. Some people may be liberated by forgiving, some may be liberated by getting even. Saying that people should automatically be forgiven does not do justice to the variety of moralities out there. Well, all right, now here we go. <laughs> here we go. What does forgiveness look like in community? What can it look like in this community? Why do we practice it? Why would we practice it in this community? What are the benefits of practicing forgiveness? I remember about five years ago, before we started our racial justice journey in this congregation, uh, we were at the very beginning steps of this, this commitment to really dismantle white supremacy culture that we saw and we knew was embedded in our faith and in ourselves. We were at the very early stages of that uh, journey. And I remember having a conversation with a member of this church, and she's given me permission to share this story. Um, we were starting to put together our racial justice leadership team, this body of congregants that would help us guide and shape this work. And I had asked her to be on the team. I said, will you join this team? And she said, no, I don't think I will. And I said, well, what's going on? Why wouldn't you be a part of this? I know you're committed to this. And she said, my heart has been broken too many times in this work. My heart has just been broken too many times. I've worked on racial justice in schools. I've tried to close the, you know, the education gap. I've, I've put my heart into it, and it's just something's been missing. It's too painful. I don't think I can do this. And I, what I remember saying, I don't have the exact words, but in the conversation, what I remember saying was, I think it might be different here in the church. I think there's a different set of practices and tools we have. Because we're doing this racial justice ministry in a faith community, we can draw on a different set of tools. Love is at the center of what we're doing. We're making sacred promises to one another about how we'll be together in this work, how we'll welcome and affirm and protect the light in each of our hearts, even when we're angry or upset or misstep with one another. We'll listen deeply to where love is calling us in this work. We'll listen to the congregation. And I said, we'll practice forgiveness. We'll practice forgiveness, forgiving ourselves and one another when we make mistakes, when we mess up, when we fall short. Because, friends, that's what it is to be human. That's particularly what it means when we're trying to do racial justice work. 
trying to do it with humility and create the beloved community, we're going to make mistakes. It was a powerful, powerful moment for both of us, realizing that there's this undergirding set of practices, this spiritual technology that could hold the pain and heartbreak and the missteps that we have experienced already and will continue to experience in this work. And that has been a real source of strength. And I think we need to remember this moment right now, 2018, April of 2018, because what I see as one of the ministers of this congregation is there can be a way in which we are harsh with ourselves. We can be exceedingly hard on ourselves as we work to dismantle white supremacy culture within ourselves and our institutions. Part of this, I believe, is connected to, to whiteness, to this desire to be experts in this work, to get it right, to not make any mistakes or have any missteps. So when we do fall short, when we do step in it, like we do, it can be painful. And it requires forgiveness, practicing forgiveness, not letting people off the hook. There needs to be an accountability, but practicing forgiveness as a community can lessen that pain. And so I want to share a responsive reading um, with you this morning from a colleague of mine. It's called A Litany of Atonement, and it's meant to be done as a community, a way a community can live into forgiveness. Now, before we do this, I invite you, if you are open to this, to imagine, bring to mind someone in this community or a community that you're connected to, someone that you would like to offer forgiveness to, someone that maybe has said something that hurt you, or uh, there's an experience that left you feeling wounded, there's some arrow that was stuck in you. Think of that person or thing you like to forgive. And you might also think of something in yourself, like a moment when your best self did not show up, when you shared a harsh word, or were impatient, or did something that hurt someone else in this community. And you might imagine um, forgiving yourself for that, and beginning again in love. So this reading is in the back of our, of our hymnal. It's 637. I'll give you a minute to find it. <clears throat> 637. And you may not have anyone called to mind, and that's all right. The invitation is to let these words um, wash over you as we say them together. I'll begin. This is 637 and then invite you to respond with the italicized portion. For remaining silent when a single voice would have made a difference. For each time that our fears have made us rigid and inaccessible. For each time that we have struck out in anger without just cause. For each time that our greed has blinded us to the needs of others. For the selfishness which sets us apart and alone. for falling short of the admonitions of the Spirit. For losing sight of our unity. For 
for those and for so many acts, both evident and subtle, which have fueled the illusion of separateness. When is it appropriate for a community to forgive? It's a good old question. In Chicago, I took my car to a Japanese-American mechanic who set up shop in the 1950s in the African-American community. I had crappy cars back then, so I saw him frequently. One day in the waiting room off to the side of the, the garage, I noticed these old posters about the Japanese internment. They were framed, but they were really old. And they were the warning posters that were issued prior to the roundup and illegal imprisonment of these American citizens. I put two and two together, and I realized that Mr. Izato's family had been interned. I pointed this out to the other people waiting in the room and said, hey, check this out. And one of the other customers said, you know, he needs to take that poster down. I've been looking at that for years. That's way over. They need to forgive and be happy they're in this country now as it is. Look how good he got it here. And I looked at this woman and I said to her, you know, it's black people like you that get on my nerves. <laughs> always forgiving the country, always forgiving the white man. You get on my damn nerves. And like many cases, uh, everybody got involved in the conversation, of course. This is before everyone was glued to a cell phone, so everybody's in the conversation that probably lingered long after I left, because I tend to do that in waiting rooms. <laughs> it's funny here in Minnesota doing it. <laughs> I'm like a vandal. <laughs> Forgiveness is often fueled by respectability politics that govern much of public speech. Something, again, I've not been very prone to. But it also is due to an innate cultural sensibility that anger is not a healthy emotion to have. The Judeo-Christian tradition, of which we as Unitarian Universalists are firmly rooted in, we, as you use, and as Americans, don't uplift anger as a human experience worth having, particularly here in Minnesota. <laughs> anger is left for God, reserved for God. The fact that the liturgical calendar doesn't have a season for anger or include in its canon a righteous indignation Sunday, <laughs> speaks to just how ingrained our anti-anger theology truly is. Forgiveness, forgiveness is something on which Christianity hangs its hat. Not only is it a biblical cornerstone of the faith, it's also a cultural expectation that polite, middle-class society requires of us. The hurdle for forgiveness is pretty high, and the road is paved with hurt and pain. While forgiveness may be the 
final resting place after an emotional roller coaster, we should not be taking a shortcut around anger to get there. Black people are often reminded that we are such a loving, forgiving, song-singing, happy people, ready to forgive, that we are required to be this sort of hyper-moral and superhuman in our tolerance of abuse. Wanting nothing more than to affirm my people, I love my people, I want to affirm my people, particularly during these difficult times, and to keep us focused on the true enemies, which is white supremacy and structural racism. I am working hard, brothers and sisters, to take a cue from my Christian brothers and sisters and to forgive our people for being so forgiven. I will never forgive Dylan Roof. I will never forgive him for walking into that church in South Carolina killing those poor people. I won't forgive the country that made him either. But I will release my anger on how other black folks find a way to keep themselves sane in the face of this madness. And I will provide the unforgiven rage towards our enemies that others simply cannot. We are told that forgiveness will help us with our anger, that it will keep our rage from destroying us. This doesn't make much sense to me either. My anger fuels me. Almost every positive change I have made in my life has been because something bothered me enough to want to do something about it. If I forgive the people and situations that outrage me, I am not sure I'd be motivated enough to change it. I became a minister because I was angry. Change often means destroying the old and I wouldn't destroy something I found acceptable. We are told that forgiveness allows us to move forward. This too is not true. One of the few constants is that life goes on regardless of what tragedies we face. Time, time is what allows us to move forward. Indeed, it means moving forward is something that we cannot avoid. Forgiveness is not required for progress. Forgiveness not required for progress. I want us all to be free. This is what it means to destroy the lie that is forgiveness. Be angry. Be outraged. Feel what you feel. Do not pretend to be something you're not. Do not pretend to be calm when you're enraged. Do not pretend to be fine when you're hurting. Do not pretend you don't care when you do. Do not suppress your emotions with those who harm you. What is guiding us, if not our emotions? Is it the law that's often wrong? Is it morality that it's often fluid, depending on what day it is?
All right, now this is where it gets complicated. And <laughs> gets complicated and, and messy. Uh, to think about forgiveness in the context of Unitarian Universalism, our own faith tradition, what teachings and history there shapes our understanding of forgiveness. Universalism is the belief that God's love and compassion extends to all of creation, no exceptions. Whatever shortcomings we might have, whatever failures we might have, they are not enough to cut us off from God's love or God's forgiveness, from God's capacity to hold all of who we are, mistakes and flaws and our beauty as well. Where it gets complicated is with someone like Dylan Roof or a mass shooter or someone that murders another person. How is it, says my human heart, how is it that that person too is loved and forgiven by a loving God? How is that possible? I know my, art, my own heart can't fathom that. It is a radical, crazy claim that our universalist ancestors made. It boggles my mind. And even if you don't believe in God, the claim still translates in this way, that love is bigger than any of us, that love can still hold all of us, and that there is something of inherent value and worth in every human being, regardless of what they have done. And then you confront evil. And what do you do with that tension? I want to share a story with you. Uh, it's a story retold by a colleague of mine that, for me, captures some of the essence of this. And this is not something that my head necessarily understands. It's something my heart resonates with. So time travel with me back to the late 1700s and the early 1800s. We're in New Hampshire, in, the, in New England, where a young universalist named Hosea Ballou is out riding his horse from village to village, from farmhouse to farmhouse, preaching and teaching the universalist gospel of love. He's out there riding his horse from little home to home, from small little hamlet and village, and I'm, I'm wondering when the first universalist is gonna get me my horse because I'm ready to go do some preaching about the universalist gospel of love. I see our board chair over there. Eric, let's talk about the horse. Uh, so Hosea Ballou is out riding his horse, preaching this universalist message. He has been caught up in this message. He feels such relief, the weight and the guilt and the shame and the, and the fear of believing God is watching and will punish you and probably will send you to hell. That has been lifted in his life and he is spreading that message around the countryside. He stops for a night at this New England farmhouse and he sees right away that the farmer is terribly upset. He's like, he's weeping, he's, he's upset. And he tells Baloo, he says, you know, my son, is a little bit of a terror. He, he goes into the village every night, he gets drunk, he, he causes some trouble, he's always messing around with women, and the farmer says, I'm really worried, my son is gonna go to hell. Okay, says Hosea Ballou, okay. Let's find a place on the path where your son will be coming home drunk tonight, and we'll build a big fire, and when he comes home, we'll grab him and we'll throw him in the fire. And the farmer was shocked, as you can imagine. The farmer was shocked, and he said, but that's my son, and I love him. And Baloo said, if you, a human and imperfect father, love your son so much that you couldn't throw him into a fire, then how can you possibly believe that God, the parent of all creation, could do something like that? 
And so, friends, embedded in our faith tradition is a claim that at the heart of things, at the heart of things, beyond right and wrong and good and evil, at the heart of things, there is a love that will not let us go, that holds us, that heals us, an everlasting love, a love that forgives, that calls on us to love, to be accountable to that love, to love and mend and repair this broken world. That's embedded in our faith. It's in our DNA. To turn our back on forgiveness is to turn our back on the love that sustains and animates us. Thank you, Barack. (laughs) Michelle is back. (laughs) Angry black woman. (laughs) I always wanted to be that angry black woman up on the stage, so. (laughs) Well, we come to an end. We Unitarian Universalists need not forgive those who have made our beliefs and a target of their hate since the time of Calvin and Servetus. We need not forgive the assailant that walked into the UU church in Tennessee in 2008 with an assault weapon and killed two members and injured many others. We need not to forgive the many perpetrators of vandalism and phone threats to our churches throughout the nation who've put up BLM signs in their windows. We need not forgive those who do not side with love. Forgiveness sacrifices our anger, and that is too high a price to pay. There are too many people shaming others into being what they want instead of letting them be who they are. It's ugly and oppressive, all to the benefit of those controlling the narrative. Our joy and our pain tell us what is really happening. Our fear and disgust can protect us. Justin, can't you see Justin and I both getting horses and riding around Minnesota together? (laughs) I think it'd be cute. Oh, Justin, our love shields us and our anger can motivate us. And we are Unitarian, we are the face of Unitarian Universalism in the 21st century. We are that face. An old time minister, me, and a young pup like you. (laughs) But together, but together and only together, with these, this is Unitarian Universalism at work. Different points of view, united in the faith. Mm-hmm. We are the UUs of the 21st century that recognize, that acknowledge, that grieve, that target, that destroy, and that change everything. And with these two narratives, we do it together. <laughs>